Hi, welcome to uh, Equippers, and today we're starting a new series. It's called Our House, God's House, and I love the title of the series because it kind of reflects the fact that part of adulting is kind of living with tension or balance, and it's kind of like, kind of like, man, uh, following Jesus, you know. Our house. He 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 promises that he's going to bless us. He promises we're going to experience life. He promises he's we're going to flourish, and 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 that's part of it, of following Jesus and enjoying that. But then then there's God's house, and it's like. But he also calls us to invest in his house, actually, so that other people uh, will experience that same flourishing. And it's like I gotta I gotta work out. Have I got the balance right? Have I got the tension right that I'm 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 experiencing God's lordship and blessing and flourishing in my house, but I'm also investing in God's house. And this is a tension that you actually already see in Scripture. For instance, uh, King David, man after God's own heart. He's, he's now got a palace and he's a bit uneasy because he's looking across at this tent, which is God's house. And he's like, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And he's kind of wondering, like, have I got the balance a bit uh, not the right balance because God's house isn't flourishing. And God comes back to him and says, no, no, it's all right, David. Someone else will build me the house I'm looking for. And actually, this is now all about the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David's like, oh, that's good. But still, I'm going to put some money aside for when it is time for someone to build that house. So he's he's concerned that he's keeping the balance right. Later on, it's quite clear the people of Israel didn't have the balance right. So the prophet Haggai comes to them, says this, This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. It's a kind of rationalization. Oh, no, it's not time for that. You know, it's time to invest in my career. It's time to invest in my family and my marriage and my kids. It's not time for God's house. And the prophet just comes and challenges them, said, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin. And he's like, you guys have got this seriously wrong, this tension. Yeah, I'm for you, but I'm also for my house. And you need to kind of get that right. So it's a great topic. It's a great chance to rethink have I got the balance right that I'm in, that I'm accepting God's blessing into my house, but I'm also investing in his house? Um, I want to I wanna look at this today through a little throwaway verse that we often hear. Um, it's a little passage in Hebrews. It just says this, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And it's kind of, I've always heard it as a little, like I said, just like a throwaway line. But when I studied it, I found out there's actually a lot more weight to this. It's actually quite serious. And it requires me to carefully consider the weight of my commitment to an investment in God's house. It's actually... That part's only the first half of the verse. The whole verse is this, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but the opposite, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And it sits within a context. The book of Hebrews is all about these people that were, life was just hard following Jesus and they were tempted to dial down what they believed about Jesus and then dial down how they lived it out. So the the book kind of flip-flops back and forth between, no, Jesus is unique Therefore, you need to stay committed to this thing. No, Jesus is like no other person. Therefore, you need to persevere in your expression of this thing. And and the chapter that this verse is in that we're looking at is where, where the writer's really nailing down the application. And it's around three uh, kind of commands, let us. So three things, let us, in light of what Jesus has done and who he is, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with, with a full assurance of faith. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope 
we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love. The interesting thing, so he nails it like it's a life of faith, hope, and love. But what I what is intriguing is where he locates those. So my relationship towards God, he associates with a life of faith. Yeah, we're called to love God, but but faith towards God. Mission outward, I have a hope for God's plan for this world. I have an expectation that He's going to advance His cause, which means when He comes to love, He's not actually primarily in this context talking about loving God or loving the world. He's actually talking about loving each other, that you may spur one another on towards love. And it's like, man, part of this whole church thing is a commitment that this is where I learn to love people. Yeah, I'm called to love God, but if I can't love the people around me, how can I say I love God who I can't see? If I, if I can't love these people who I'm rubbing shoulders with, how can I say I love the world out there, people I don't even know? It's like, this is the laboratory to develop this life of love. And so, uh, and so the context is actually, the famous verse is a comma, it's not a whole sentence, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, comma, not giving up meeting together. It kind of like, man, the primary purpose, according to this passage for our meeting together, is that this is the environment where we encourage each other as we learn how to love one another. I commit to these people where we learn what it means to be a community of love. See, one of the things I love about church it's not really that complicated. It's not rocket science. There's three things, an upward, an inward, and an outward dimension. We're called to worship, we're called to fellowship and community, and we're called to mission. So people sometimes uh, see it like this triangle, and it's like this is it, anything we do basically fits into one of these three things. And it's a bit like a Toblerone segment. It's like this is supposed to be the appetizing thing, a, a community of worship, fellowship, and mission. And actually, church is like a Toblerone bar. In every generation, we just come up with another configuration of those things. It's like 30 years ago, worship looked like probably an acoustic guitar and maybe a flute and a tambourine and an overhead projector. And fellowship looked like a hall off the side of the church with a big pot of tea and some plain biscuits. Maybe 60 years ago, worship looked like an organ and hymn books. Maybe a few hundred years ago, it looked like uh, nuns and monks chanting. It's like, it's just the same thing. It's just an expression of worship, fellowship, and mission. Nothing changes in terms of the purpose. And it's like, it's actually quite simple. We're called in our generation to live out these three things. But I have a feeling that this is the weak link in our generation. Because you often meet, you hear about people and like, oh yeah, they used to go to church, you know, oh, they still believe in God. Oh, they're still really nice people. Like they'll give to City Mission. They'll, they'll give to uh, World Vision. Maybe they serve on their uh, school board of trustees. Oh, but they don't go to church anymore. And it's like, no, church has always involved these three. And it's like, this seems to be the weak link at this time. And, we're, and so part of this uh, series is just to kind of go, let's kind of be a bit countercultural. Let's re-look at the place of church as I, I need to commit to this commitment community of love. Um, he, he actually unpacks this same kind of thing a few chapters earlier, Hebrews 6. He just talks about, again, keep on loving others. And if you do that in order to make certain your hope will come true, and if you'll do that, you're going to inherit God's promise because of their faith. It's like, oh man, it's like, yeah, a life of faith, hope, and love. But his challenges keep on almost, I mean, this is pretty strong. He's like, 
Keep on committing to the love part and the other parts will look after themselves. If you'll just keep turning up in this environment of a community of people, your life will keep readjusting around faith in God and worship. Your life will keep readjusting around priorities and mission. But your part is to commit to keep on loving others. And, and he says, what happens if you don't do that part you become spiritually dull and indifferent. And it's like, people often like, man, I need a new encounter of faith or I need a new expression of mission. No, no, you're spiritually dull and indifferent because you've neglected the point, just keep turning up amongst God's people and commit to these relationships and commit to developing love. Um, so I wanna, I wanna look at this verse a bit. And like I said, it's kind of like, wow, this is a bit heavy. And um, so this is, let me pick out some things. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I heard Pastor Sam mention this verse um, last week and, and it struck me that we often think maybe like a blank slate and I need to create a habit of coming to church. But he, he actually says, the problem is some people have developed another habit. It's actually a habit to not be part of church. You've dr- people have drifted into what is now a habit of uh, my habit is to sleep in on Sundays. My habit is to just go to the movies. My habit is go to the beach. I've, I've developed another habit. It's not an absence of a habit. It is the presence of a habit. And habits are important. There's a whole psychology of habits. Habits are our brain's way of increasing efficiency. Our brain turns daily actions and behaviors into habits. So we would do them automatically and without too much thought, thus freeing up our brain power for other more important challenges. The strategy of our brain has wonderful benefits for us. The problem is saying people have developed a habit where they now no longer think about turning up for church. Whereas, whereas the writer's like, no, keep the habit where it's just you don't even think about it. Sunday morning, I roll out of bed and I get ready to go to church because this is now my habit. And, and the significance is that someone else talks about habits, that you can have habits that you develop because the outcome it's going to produce, but you can also habits, have habits you develop because of it. it's your identity. And he's like, with outcome-based habits, the focus is on what you want to achieve. With identity-based habits, the focus is on who you wish to become. The ultimate form of intrinsic motivation is when a habit becomes a part of your identity. And that's really the challenge of this series. No, my identity is I'm a follower of Jesus, and one-third of that is a commitment to community. One-third of that is a commitment to fellowship. One-third of that is a commitment to just turning up with a group of people. Yeah, it means I have faith towards Jesus. Yeah, I, I believe in His purpose in the world. But I also believe part of my identity is I create the habit of turning up amongst His people and that it's important. I think this is a really important insight because kind of a generation ago, people did habits out of a sense of obligation because if you didn't do it, you felt guilty. Oh, I felt guilty because I didn't read my Bible this morning. I felt guilty because I didn't pray. I felt guilty because I didn't go to church. Like You don't want that. And in response to that, there was this pendulum swing Oh, I found freedom from just being authentic. You know, I was all ready to come to church and, you know, I just felt like that would be such a hypocrite. So I just went for a walk on the beach and I just felt God and it was just awesome. The problem with that is that you end up with no momentum when you're just flowing out of impulse and you actually end up with disorder from just being spontaneous. 
And it's like, oh, I don't want to live under guilt, but I don't want to live under this disorder from no purpose and like, is there another way? And increasingly people are talking about, actually the third way is this, I understand that my life is formed from the habits that I put in place because of my heart's priority. And it's like, oh no, I, it's, I, I'm not doing it out of guilt, but I'm also not just, oh, I'm just going to be authentic to how I'm feeling today. No, I choose around my identity to say, if I'll keep, and if I'll keep putting into place certain habits, I'm going to become the person I want to be. And I want a life of faith with God. I want a life of mission that impacts our world. But to do those, the writer Hebrew says, just commit to loving the family of God. Commit to building the house of God. Commit to just turning up in this place and kind of just being in that environment will bring the adjustments and the other things that you want. Um, the word, the Greek word behind this is uh, the, of custom or habit is the word ethos. It's like your life has an ethos to it. And you'll see it by the customs and the habits that you do. And I, I want a certain ethos to my life that I'm a follower of Jesus, that I'm committed to his purpose. And so again, interesting in the Bible, um, the early church has always had certain customs or habits that reflect this ethos. So first day of uh not even the church at Pentecost, the first day of Jesus' resurrection, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, discovers that Jesus has rose from the dead. Later on that day, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. It's like from day one, on the first day of the week, the disciples have gathered, Jesus' presence has come in the midst, and he spoke supernatural peace and wholeness and healing. It's like, it's not that complicated. Just gather on the first day of the week with everyone. Jesus is going to be there and he's going to do beautiful things. And, and, and this pattern became established. So Acts, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. First Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. It's like, we kind of, in this generation, we want to reinvent everything. It's like, for 2,000 years, it's worked. Just turn up on the first day of the week with other people and Jesus will be present and he'll do beautiful things. It's like, it's not that complicated. Um, and, and even Jesus and Paul had this pattern. He, as a Jew, he's like, he, on, the, on his hometown, Nazareth, on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Even Jesus was, had an ethos to his life shaped by the customs and the habits he put in place. And his habit was to turn up. Man, as the son of God, he's like, I just need to turn up. Paul was the same, as was his custom. Paul went into the synagogue on the Sabbath days. It's like there was just a simple practice. If I'll just keep turning up, somehow the other things will, will experience the shalom of God, the peace of God, the healing of God, the restoration of God. But my job is to just keep turning up at God's house. On, and, and the rhythm has for 2,000 years has been weekly. On the first day of the week, just commit to that rhythm, commit to that custom, commit to that habit. And, and, and something will happen. And so Pastor Sam often just says now, just keep turning up. It's actually a biblical concept. That's our part in this. Just keep turning up and God will arrange the rest. Um, and, and I love this promise in Revelation. The one who's victorious, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God and never again will I leave it. If you'll just keep going, you'll become like a pillar, like you're established. These, you don't move pillars in a building. 
And if you'll commit to that habit, it will form something solid. And more than that, the pillar is what holds it up for other people. And it's like, man, there's a whole lot of people that are a bit lot more vulnerable than I. If I'll just keep turning up, we'll create an environment where a whole lot of other people are going to get blessed as well. Just keep turning up. Um, and, and, and so this phrase, the famous one we kind of say, not giving up, different translations have uh, different English terms for this. So some not giving up, others not neglecting, others not forsaking. What I found is that it, it kind of sounds like, oh, it just kind of slipped away a bit, but it's actually a really strong word. In fact, one commentator says this, the verb is a singularly strong expression in Greek signifying to desert, to abandon, to leave in the lurch. So the writer's like, don't abandon people. Don't forsake them. Don't leave them in the lurch, as some of them have got in the habit of doing. It's like, man, that's, that dials it up pretty seriously because it's the same word that Jesus uses on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that's an experience of, of Jesus's trauma taking on the sin of the world. But it's an experience God doesn't want any of us to have because Jesus took it. So actually the promise to us in Hebrews again a bit later on, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God says, and hear the, hear the strength in this, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. This Christian thing is not just about feelings. It begins with a commitment by God. I will never forsake you. And, 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 and this is a thought that comes back from Deuteronomy. Again, be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. It's like, man, it's a challenging, it's a challenging life for some people, but God wants them to know I will never forsake you in this. And here's what, again, this is this real strong language. This is what one commentator says. Do not do to one another what God never does to you. Do not leave your fellow church members in the lurch. And so it's not about like, I just need to turn up for me. It's like, no, I need to turn up because I don't know what these people are around. I don't know what's happened in their week. Maybe someone got a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe someone's had a tragedy in their family. But it's like they need to know that God will never forsake them. And they need to know that the rest of us will never forsake them. And it's like, I need to turn up not just for me, but I need to turn up so that I'm there for other people who just need some people to gather around them and love on them and encourage them today. And it's like, and then if I'll commit to, I'm going to become like a temple that provides the strength for this place that other people who aren't strong come come and find a sanctuary in. This language is language uh, that Paul uses a number of times. Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas because he loved this world. Notice that has deserted me. This is not like, oh, it kind of slipped. Oh, whatever. No, he's like, no, they deserted me. They forsook me. They left me in the lurch. Again, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone, everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Man, I don't want people who are struggling to feel like, oh, where's that guy Steve that used to be around? Oh, he doesn't come anymore. And, and they just feel like, they just feel let down. It's like, and I, and it's just such a strong passage that I never realized there was actually so much power behind it. And, and, and Paul summarizes this. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Again, people, people's life will be hard-pressed. Some people will arrive perplexed, confused. They don't understand what God's doing. 
maybe suffering persecution, maybe struck down. But there's a but side of things that people aren't supposed to experience. And one of them is they are not supposed to experience being abandoned. And God's committed to that, but he asks you and I to commit to it too. Man, I'm not going to leave you in the lurch. I'm not going to let you down. I'm gonna, we're going to be part of a family who commits to loving together and looking after each other. So, sorry, that's a pretty heavy first part of the verse. The, then he flicks into the positive side. So I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to abandon meeting together as some have allowed themselves to create that habit. But this is the opposite. But encouraging one another. Interesting. You know, again, I said it's those three things, worship, fellowship, and mission. Man, we gather to worship. But according to this, one of the main reasons we gather is to speak life and encouragement into each other. Because you don't know what kind of week people have had. You don't know where they're at. They, they walk in with a smile, but you don't know what they're carrying in their heart. But it's like one of the main reasons we gather, according to this, is to just to encourage one another. It's like, yeah, they're all important when we gather, but, but interesting as a stretch, the book of Hebrews really emphasizes this one. Man, you don't neglect your assembling together because the alternative is come and encourage one another in their life. We often say that sentences like this around a cup is, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You know, choose your squad wisely. It's like, man, I need to commit to being part of this community. Well, for me, I need to choose to be in this community for how they're going to encourage me. But I need to choose to be one of those kind of friends who's going to, who's going to encourage, who's going to empower, who's going to inspire people. And so I don't want to be in the wrong place to get encouragement, but I also don't want to get isolated. And if you think these are a bit modern, whatever, trendy sayings, here's a thousand-year-old one. St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He who appoints himself as his own spiritual advisor has a fool for a disciple. It's like... You'd be foolish just to think you could do this by yourself. Like, I I still believe in Jesus. I still want to involve, but I don't do community anymore. Like a thousand years of wisdom would go, that is not a great move. You're leaving yourself vulnerable. There's a whole biblical thing that our, our security, again, for lack of guidance, a nation falls. Victory is won through many advisors. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Surely you need guidance to wage war, and victory is won through many advisors. See, who's your many advisors? Who's the group of people who can speak into your life? Who's the group of people who can encourage you, but can also go, bro, what are you doing? Don't do that. That's going to be a disaster for your life. And it's like God has designed this thing. We're a community that worships. We're a community that has our impact in the world, but we're a community that looks after each other, that encourages each other, that, that exhorts each other, that warns each other, that says, I got you. I'm never going to leave you in the lurch. I'm never going to abandon you. I'm never going to forsake you. Um, there's, a, there's a famous saying we have in Equippers. There's kind of two versions of it. Equippers is a whole lot of friends challenging or championing one another to go higher in Christ. Again, I think that's incredibly biblical according to Hebrews. Your entry point into this thing is commit to these group of people and they'll champion you to get closer to God and to grow in your purpose and destiny in the world. But the, the starting point, the paradoxical starting point is this. We become a group of friends committed to each other and we allow each other to speak into our lives and, and, and things begin here according to Hebrews. Um, and, and just the final part of the verse, just to unpack one whole verse, not 
giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And it's a funny, it's a funny way to finish it. And it's like, is that like a thread? Is it whatever? I love what I read one commentator. He said, do you know what? Christians believe that we're headed towards a final day. And what happens then? Jesus comes back, gathers his people to himself as his bride, and we are together with him for eternity. And, and the logic of this is like, how could you believe that's where we're going with Jesus together as his bride and yet not commit to that now? Like, how could you walk away from the very foretaste of the thing we're headed towards? It's like, if you believe that's where we're going, you'd, you'd commit to it now. It's like, it started on Easter Sunday. It finishes when Jesus comes back. We now get to do it at least the first day of every week. Just add in as well e-groups and shout conferences and equippers and other things. But it's like, man, this is where we're going to be the people of God together with him for eternity. And it's like, just start it now. Just get involved now. Um, I want to I wanna finish kind of with a bit of a change of tack to kind of go, hopefully you get how serious this is. Take, like, and it's like, man, I need, to, I need to put some discipline. I need to put a habit in this. But there's, there's a sense that, um, talk about these three terms, vision, passion, and discipline. And we often feel like, man, I've got a discipline problem. But they're like, no, no, discipline comes from passion and passion comes from vision. You don't have a discipline problem, you have a vision problem. And so just for a few minutes, I wanna give you a vision of what this thing, the house of God is really about. So that when you wake up on Sunday morning, it's like, ah, I'm feeling a bit tired. It's like, no, no, this is an important habit that I just keep turning up because I know what we're doing. And so let me just quickly in a couple of minutes, basically like give a, massive overview right through the Bible of one theme, which is this. God has always sought for a a location for people to encounter his glory. So right back when Moses built this tabernacle, this tent, when they dedicated it, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter because the cloud and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Later on, when Solomon built a temple, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not perform their servants because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God has always sought for a place where lost and hurting people could go, I just need to go there and I'm going to encounter God. And people who knew that could go, man, you've got a problem. You should go there because you'll encounter God. The problem was at their low point in history, the prophet Ezekiel had a horrifying vision. He saw this, the glory of the God of the Lord lifted up and left the temple. And it's like you've got all your religious institution or your religious ritual, but there's no glory there anymore. You know, and they went into exile, then they came back. Well, um, Bono says about that kind of concept. It's almost like religion is what happens when the spirit has left the building. And it's like, man, we don't want that. We're, we're, we want to be a place that hosts the glory of God. And it, as I said, when they came back, this foreign King Cyrus had the sense that God had commissioned him to send the Jews back. He's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. Uh, any of his people among you may go up and build the temple. So they went and they built the temple. And it's like, man, we're rebuilding the place where God dwells. And there was this incredible prophecy that one day the glory of that house would be greater. But do you know what? They knew that the glory never came back. 
And 400 years later, when Jesus arrives, one day that he's sitting with his disciples outside the temple, it's been finished building, and they're like, well, massive stones, what magnificent buildings, it's gold-bladed and in a Middle Eastern sun, you know, shining down, it would be spectacular. And it's like, man, these are magnificent. And Jesus is like, yeah, one day, none, none of it's going to be left. And it's like, everyone knew it was magnificent, but it wasn't glorious. Because in our human creativity, we can do magnificent, but we can't do glorious because the glory is the presence of God. And, and magnificent's not wrong. When, when Solomon built the temple, he actually said this, I have built a magnificent temple. Magnificence, excellence is what I offer to God because he's worthy. But magnificence is never gonna touch someone's heart. The lights and sound and the setting, that we do that as our offering of excellence, but people need an encounter with glory. And God has always had a strategy that there would be a place for people to encounter glory. And so when Jesus came, the Word became flesh, made His dwelling, or had tabernacled amongst us. He was like the location when we have seen His glory. And when Jesus was around, man, you're broken, you hurt, go to Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Go to Jesus. You'll see the glory of God there. But now He's gone. So where do people go for the glory? Where do they go for an encounter with God? And, and Paul is like this, don't you know you yourselves together are God's temple? God's spirit dwells in your midst. God's temple is sacred. You together, it's like when you gather together, that's where the glory is now. It's like, man, I don't want to forsake the assembling together where there's an environment created. It's not a building anymore. It's not a physical temple. It's a gathering of people, but God's glory becomes present. And I can point to other people and go, man, you should just turn up at that church on Sunday morning because good things will happen in your life because you'll meet Jesus because you'll be set free because the glory's there. And so I love the fact that the Apostle Paul, you know, he has this great vision of what God can do. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. And this is his prayer. To him be glory in the church. He's like, man, the most important thing for the church is the glory would be there. That when people walk in, they encounter God. And, and that we're building an environment where people can encounter God. Because all kinds of wonderful worship will happen. Wonderful transformation will happen. But it all happens because we've created an environment of the gathering together of God's people where his glory turns up. Just like on the first day of Easter Sunday, they were gathered together and Jesus came into their midst and pronounced peace. For 2,000 years, Christians have chosen to gather together on the first day of the week, confident that Jesus would arrive and, and wonderful things would happen. How does this relate to what we've been talking about? And this is kind of where the whole thing lands, because this is what Peter says. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to, to him. Okay, when you come to him, that's their faith dimension. What happens? You also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Again, in our generation, we've lost that sense. I, I've had an encounter with God. Wonderful. It all begins there. And I pray this morning there's some people listening to this who have that kind of encounter. For the first time, you've come to Jesus. You're, you're born again. You're transformed. But then do you know what he does? 
He starts building you together with other people. He starts fitting you into a community. And the mortar of these stones is love. And the mortar is this commitment. I'm never going to abandon you. I'm never going to forsake you. We're being built into a spiritual house. Because if we'll commit to that process of being built together, God will commit to arriving in our midst with his glory. And it's like, oh, man, you know, God, I'm but like David and but like in Haggai, I've been thinking a lot about my house. God, I need you to bless my business. I need you to bless my marriage. I need to bless my home. I'm praying for these health issues to pass. I'm praying for these relationships. That's all good. God's into that. But he also wants us to know and acknowledge, man, we have a role to allow God to assemble us together in a community committed to one another committed i'll never forsake you i'll never abandon you i'll never leave you in the lurch this is the laboratory when i learn how to love these people we're not just an assembly of people who gather to sing songs and worship or to go and do great things we're a community committed to learning how to love each other because that's god's strategy to allow his glory and so, I, you know, I'm really excited, like I said, about the series. I feel like we're pretty good on the upward worship. That was actually the section full access, comes from those verses before. We're pretty good on a commitment to mission and global vision and church planning and transformation. But culturally, we're a bit clunky and a bit awkward and, and got a few question marks about how important this is. God bless you today and God bless you during the series as we think about our house, God's house.